Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's your DC Comic Spotlight for the week of June 27th, 2023. Comic-Con's getting close. I know there's a lot of doom and gloom talk based on all the studios that have pulled out. And uh, while I'm trying to stay positive, uh, it's it's sort of – it's the show's in a strange place. I hear people saying, well, I, yeah, I can go back to being a comic show. I'm sorry, guys. I, I wish it could. I wish you could turn back the clock on that. But the fact of the matter is, the show's evolved beyond yeah. that. And you're, ta you're talking about San Diego, right? You never said which con. So San Diego Comic Con, the, the, yeah. the Super Bowl of cons. There's there's just not the amount of comic about. There's not the money in comic publishing that there was even before San Diego turned into a multimedia show, right? Like that probably started around. Let's conservatively say 2010. It was earlier than that, but let's say 2010, right? That's over yeah. 10 years ago that the, the con has evolved. And there's all the studio money. And the simple fact is if all the studio, if all the movies, if all the studio, if they all pulled out, I, there's not enough money in comic publishing to still make San Diego the spectacle it is. Would, would there still be demand? Yes. Would people still go? Yes. But the demand would drop over time because the majority of people that go to San Diego, the vast majority of people that go to San Diego – don't go for comic books. They just don't. That didn't used to be the case. Now it is. And over a period of a few years, the demand would dry up, which means there'd be even less vendors going and there'd be less to see and do. So less people would go. So then there'd be less vendors and less to get. You see how it's a cycle? Well, so it people is. That, I, yeah, people that are happy about this, you shouldn't be happy about this. Yeah. I, I, I am a proponent. I have talked on the show many times debated on the show about how I think that actually comics and comic book properties and characters becoming the center of pop culture has actually hurt comic book publishing because it, it put more eyes. The creators don't have the freedom to just create good stories anymore. There's too many eyes. There's too much money and what have you. You can't, you can't unring the bell. You can't unring the bell. And people that think that San Diego Comic-Con is too big to fail, just look at E3. It was the biggest video game show in the country in the world huh. and it's gone now so don't think san diego's too big to fail i don't want it to fail i'd love san diego to be about comics more focused on comics i just don't see how we get from where we are now to that point so it's a unique situation with the writer strike here and possible actor strike as well so that's you know a lot of the reason that a lot of the studios are pulling out they don't have writers to do press they may not have actors to do press. Um, and a lot of these streaming services, you know, Disney, they're so big, they put on their own shows now. Why do I need San Diego? And and it's still remnants of the pandemic, right? Like all these studios and what have you, they say, hey, we didn't have it during the pandemic. We didn't spend those hundreds of thousands of dollars exhibiting at San Diego. And guess what? It didn't affect our bottom line one way or the other. So why are we spending all this money? Why are we going through all the hassle of going to San Diego? So, and again, I know there's people that, you know, I, I say this, these are things to be worried about and other people online, people I won't mention by name are like, oh, I would love to have the existential crisis that San Diego Comic-Con has since it still sells out. I'm not talking about this year or even next year or even the following year. I'm talking long-term. Long-term, the show looks like it's in trouble. And I'm not just saying that from as an outsider looking in. I specifically know people and vendors that San Diego reached out to practically begging them, begging them to come and exhibit at the show because 
there's just empty spaces everywhere. And I think even if the show can continue at some point, Comic-Con International will say, this show can't be what we think it should be. And rather than putting on uh, and putting out a subpar product, they just won't do it. So the show's in trouble, whether you want to look at the world through rose colored glasses or not, that's up to you. But with what I know and the people I've talked to, the show's in trouble. Um, well, uh, I'm going to get the thing Sorry. that I'm most disappointed in maybe is the fact that just like last year, there's no carpet on the floor, man, walking around that show for four days on hard concrete. Oh man. It's, it's, I know it's first world problems, but man, my back and my feet are just killing me. Ha, you know, halfway through day one, as opposed to used to be able to go stand in that nice DC booth, had the really thick carpet. Yeah. It's not that way anymore. So, so Rocky, you better get over to San Diego uh, sometime well, in the next couple of years. May not be there. Well, you're uh, you're, you're definitely you're making me think. I don't have your I don't have your connections or the people you 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 know a lot more people within the field of comics than I do. I'm I'm probably more of just a, a reader in Southern Alberta, but uh, I I like to think that there was a you know conflagration of 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 rather extraordinary events this year i mean we've got some we're right at the precipice of what many people are saying is sort of people are moving away from you know the the superhero movies you know other than into the spider verse and spider man i mean there there's some you know there's a downturn in the superhero movies and then with the writers strike and with the, the talk of the continuing downward sales of comic books and the prevalence of manga. And I'm sure manga is going to be very prevalent at uh, San Diego Comic-Con. I, I think that I like to think these things are cyclical. I also, I don't know, you made a comment about, you know, some of the streaming services promote their shows in other ways. I would think that San Diego would be a, I would think collectively they would all want to go to San Diego as opposed to having their own little mini shows. So I'm, I'm a little bit surprised by that, but, uh, I, you know, it's hard for me to argue against you because there is this sort of relentless storm of sort of pessimism in general and in multiple uh, areas of media, it's not just comic books. It's, it's also movies. You know, people are shying away from the movie theater. It's not just comic books. It's movies, too, at the present time. And so since San Diego prides itself on being both comics and movies and both comics and movies seem to be at kind of a low point right now, everybody's pissed off. Everybody's being negative about comic books. Everybody's being negative about the movies. It doesn't matter what superhero movie it is. No, nobody's saying anything nice. I'm looking forward to going to uh, uh, Indiana Jones next week. And I can't, I, I have to stay off social media because people are relentlessly negative about it. And, um, uh, Anyways, uh, it's really sad. It's really sad. So I, you know what? I started off trying to be a voice of optimism to you, and now I'm ended up sadly agreeing with you. So right. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but but to my point about putting on their own show, I, I'm talking about virtual. I'm talking about virtual shows, like do you know putting on something, hmm. you know, you know, digitally as opposed to, and, and the other part of it, e even if you do your own thing, which is this is what video games uh, makers have started to do, they will just have their own little one or two day thing and invite press or whatever. It's way cheaper. And here's the thing. You're not competing for the attention, right? Like if you're a movie studio or you're, you're a, a streaming service and you go to San Diego to promote your, whatever your next big show is, you're competing for eyes and for attention with everything else that's at San Diego. Um, if you just do your own thing on a weekend in LA or San Francisco or New York or wherever, Everybody that comes there, every press person, every fan or whatever, they're just focused on your thing. They've come to see your thing. So, it, yeah, the world's the world of entertainment is changing. 
And it's going to be interesting. I'd really be curious to see what San Diego looks like in five years. Now, don't get me wrong. I would love, 100% love to be able to turn back the clock to pre-2000 San Diego Comic-Con, back when you can go and get a sketch for free, if not, you know, five, ten bucks now. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> the old days. Yeah, I don't charge the creators for charging what they can charge. I mean, they're we know they're vastly undercompensated, but yeah, I mean, back now that now you can't even get a signature anymore without paying, which that wasn't the case when I started going. Yeah. I kind of missed the free sketch era. Got a few free sketches here and there when I first yeah. started out. Yeah, it would be great to go back, um, but again, I just you can't unring that bell. You can't. The comic industry has just changed too much. So. Anyway, that's uh, that's my rant for today. Thanks for joining everybody. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we will t- <laughs> we'll talk about some comics, um, and I will try to stay positive. Although, you know, I gotta be honest, this week was a little underwhelming from uh, from DC for me. Nothing stood out, it, and I sort of feel like again, I don't. I'm not gonna rant about Night Terrors. Everybody that listens to this show on a regular basis knows how I feel about it. Um, but I sort of feel like that. You know, is that part of why? we're kind of coming to the end of June with a whimper because Night Terrors is starting to, to ramp up. I mean, I guess on the plus side, there were a few books over the last few weeks where I, I got to the end of the issue and I was like, oh, I can't wait for the next one. Oh, wait, I have to wait two months because Night Terrors. This week, you know, nothing is was so exciting that it's like, oh, it sucks that this is getting interrupted by Night Terrors. I just kind of finished reading it and shrugged and went on to the next one. So nothing really jumped out. Um that being said, let's kick it off with Green Arrow number three. It's written by Joshua Williamson, art and cover by Sean Isaacs, letters by Troy Petrie, uh, colors by Romulo Fajardo Jr. Uh, we get a little bit of an explanation. So kudos to Joshua Williamson for not doing that thing where you drag out the mystery for weeks and weeks and weeks. We find out why the Green Arrow family doesn't seem to be able to be together. We find out why... When Leanne and uh, Roy realized who each other was in that first issue, Leanne was teleported away. Um, so basically, Green Arrow got a message from his older self, his older, bald, grizzled, scarred, heavily bearded self, saying that there's some great disaster that happens in the future. And that disaster is caused by Green Arrow, not just Green Arrow but the Green Arrow family of people. You can see it on the screen there if you're watching us on YouTube. Um, and so there's speculation that Amanda Waller got involved and basically implanted each member of the Green Arrow family with a little teleportation device in their neck. And if they get too close to each other, uh, they're teleported away from each other. So kind of interesting. I mean, we talk about having the ability to, to affect the, the world, the multiverse even, in such a way that everything, all of reality unravels. Like the Green Arrow family, they're they're not, first of all, the fact that I'm even saying Green Arrow family, right? Like we talked about it in the first issue, how it's all these families is getting a little hand, out of hand at DC. But but setting that aside, like the, the fact that any of these heroes um, or characters have the ability to really affect the multiverse in such a way to destroy it, that's a little, you know, you kind of shake your head, take that with a grain of salt. Um, <clears throat> But I will say, having uh, Williamson kind of reveal this in the third issue, I appreciate that. I don't like the fact that it's dragged out for a long time. I like the fact we're getting to see the Legion of Superheroes. I like Sean Isaac's art a whole hell of a lot. And Fajardo Jr.'s colors, really bright. Those primary colors that really make it feel like a superhero comic. So um, 
I kind of didn't know where this was going, even two issues in. I was just kind of wondering because we hadn't gotten a lot of those answers. A lot of the answers that we've been looking for, we're, we get some of them here. And I like the way that feels because it does feel like it's providing momentum. But again, we're going to get a two-month interrupt with Night Terrors. So of all the books where I was like, I wouldn't want an interruption, it's probably this one, although it's not so compelling that I was as disappointed as I've been with, with previous series. But I'm enjoying, I am enjoying this. And um, despite the fact that I still don't understand why we have a female peacemaker called Peacebreaker, whatever, she's a good foil for Peacemaker. Williamson gives Peacemaker a good voice. He he writes him well. There's a lot of different writers working on different uh, Peacemaker appearances. He seems to be everywhere in the DCU right now due to his you know popularity in other media, which is fine. But at least there's a consistency of tone. Uh, it's <laughs> not that I'm trying to sell the writers short, but it's probably more a coincidence than than anything, um, because we know there's not a real strong uh, you know continuity between titles right now. Uh, but it was still a great moment when Peacemaker uh, challenges Roy Harper to uh, a contest. They, you know, we know Black Canary and Roy Harper are basically trying to talk to Amanda Waller to find out what's going on. They know he's involved with the disappearances and uh, of Leanne and what have you. And uh, so basically, Peacemaker's like, "Okay, you want to know where Waller is? I'll, I'll make you a bet." And he has uh, Peacebreaker throw this helmet up in the air—a helmet that has a little bullseye on the forehead and he challenges Roy Harper. Hey, whoever gets closer to the bullseye, well, I'll shoot my badass bullets. You shoot your crappy little arrows and whoever gets closer, uh, you know, if you get closer, I'll tell you what, uh, I'll let you talk to uh, Count Vertigo who may have some information about where Waller is. And if, uh, if Peacemaker wins, uh, Black Canary and, and Roy Harper agree to just leave, no questions asked. Uh, and also I love that Peacemaker calls Count Vertigo Count Barfalot, you know, cause he's always messing with, what's up and down and left and right. And, you know, basically orientation. So yeah, if you have motion sickness, yeah, you're going to, you're going to bomb it. So great moment. Um, Give Williamson a lot of credit. This to me feels, it feels, it has a little bit of a different feel than anything that I've read from Williamson before. Um, Sometimes I think he has a tendency to take himself a little too seriously. Um, If I had any complaint about his flash run, it was that, um, kind of bogged down sometimes in kind of real heavy dialogue and what have you. There's a lot of light moments in Green Arrow, even though we know the consequences, we know the stakes now with this idea that the Green Arrow family is going to destroy the multiverse. So yeah, big fan, love the art. And that Peacemaker, uh, Roy Harper um, contest was was a lot of fun. So uh, what did you think of this, Rocky? I liked it. I, and I agree with you. I think uh, Williamson is, uh, he's going outside. He's, he seems to be, if I didn't, the way I'd put it, I feel like he's having a little, he had a little bit more fun this issue. And he's a little bit more relaxed. I, I kind of liked it. I, I even liked uh, the explanation there. There's a, there's a hidden explanation in here. Well, it's not so hidden. It's like uh, in regard to Leon, you know, why is Leon, uh, why is Leon look older? I mean, I would have thought Leon would still be an, uh, still still a child, but it's because Leon was traveling through time, and she was always jumping through time. And she just at one point she hopped into the past, into Alley Town, into Selena Kyle Catwoman's Alley Town during Ram V's run, and, and she liked it there, and so she decided to stay there. So we actually have a, a slightly older Leon that that would explain if if anyone was thinking like me that maybe Leon was a little bit old, appeared to be a little bit older than than she she ought to be. Well, there's actually an explanation for that in here. Although I do note that uh, Roy Harper never noticed that his that Leon was 
older than he she probably ought to be. But uh, regardless, I, I thought it was interesting. I, I also thought that the portrayal of Peacemaker was more in line with the Peacemaker of the of James Gunn's Peacemaker as opposed to the uh, DC Universe's uh, Peacemaker. There was that scene in the Suicide uh, the, the Suicide Squad movie where where Peacemaker squared off against Bloodsport in that in that final scene where Bloodsport, of course, ends up. Killing, putting a bullet in Peacemaker's heart at the end of the Suicide Squad movie. Oh, spoiler alert! I ruined it for you. Um, but um, and I still haven't seen it. <laughs> he, he's still alive. He survives. Obviously, he gets a TV series out of it. But uh, in any event, that that's what this reminds me of. Peacemaker, you know, wanting comes across a, another sharpshooter just like himself and challenges him. That's him doing that to Roy Harper because otherwise, Peacemaker's. Uh, He's always been, I've always thought Peacemaker was fanatically loyal to Amanda Waller. Peacemaker deviates from diehard loyalty to Waller here by doing this, which really surprised me. And it uh, didn't seem to particularly upset when uh, he lost to Roy Harper. But those are minor things and frankly, fun things. I actually enjoyed those moments. Uh, and the, the revelation as to, you know, we have this older Oliver Queen talking about that, oh, my family, the the Queen family, you know, the Green Arrow family created the great disaster. And in DC lore, the great disaster leads to Commandy, the last boy on earth. That's a great disaster that usually under standard, standard continuity is 10,000 years from now. So it's kind of hard to imagine that anything the Green Arrow family would do would lead to the great disaster. But Frankly, uh, Bendis really screwed up that timeline uh, in the Legion of, when he, on his Legion of Superheroes run. I won't get into it, but he did. Trust me. And, and it, it was nice to see the Legion of Superheroes here. Uh, and I, you know, they, they look decidedly different. Uh, obviously, artistically different. Uh, Ryan Sook was the artist during Bendis's run, but I like this. I, I thought that uh, I thought that Wellington captured the voices of the Legion of Superheroes, particularly Brainiac Five, very well. I like the fact that, uh, you know, we're, we're jumping back and forth between two significant events. It's uh, Green Arrow. Um, once again, we get a big hug, Green Arrow and Connor Hawk hugging. Again, reminiscent of Roy Harper. We had Roy Harper hugging Leon in the in the first issue. And uh, it's reminiscent, of course, with Flash and uh, Barry Allen and Wally West. So, you know, there's a lot of hugging and hope, hopeful hugs occurring in the DC universe. And Williamson is just, you know, doing his best imitation of... Uh, uh, John's and imitating himself again. So I thought this was a lot of fun. I actually think that uh, probably this is one of the better comics this week. I thought this is, uh, we got some revelations and I'm interested to see where it's going in terms of exactly, you know, uh, th there's a surprise appearance at the end with, of all people, Parallax showing up, which we know must be. It, it makes me wonder if, if, who did who did all this future version of Oliver Queen? Did he make a deal with Amanda Waller, or did he make a deal with Parallax, or did he make a man a deal with Amanda Waller, who is who is hired Parallax to make sure that Oliver Queen doesn't meet up with his family? And so something's going on here. There's a lot of events going on behind the scenes, so seemingly orchestrated by Oliver Queen in conjunction with Amanda Waller, and maybe in conjunction with Parallax. We don't know, but. You know, a lot of good questions. Williamson seems to be moving all the plot pieces in play. And so far, I'm, I think we're all, it's easy easy enough to follow. And I'm hoping that is going to, you know, pay some dividends because we're only on issue three here. And I think this is, well, I think this was initially just, what, a six issue series. So we'll see. Uh, well, I don't know that it got announced as a limited. We, we were told Williamson was writing the first six issues. Um 
but I don't right. I don't think it's a limited. But I, you know, maybe he that he hadn't committed to doing more than six. I, right. I don't know. So, well, I, I have a feeling it's going to get more than six, regardless if it isn't. So it's good. Yeah, I mean, Green Arrow's definitely a kind of a staple, you know, of the DCU. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Next, we have Detective Comics number one thousand seventy-three. Main story written by Ram V. Uh, Yvonne Reese and Goran Suzuka are the pencilers. Danny Mickey and Suzuka on inks. Brad Anderson on colors. Ariana Mare on letters. Then we have the backup story written by Dan Waters with art by Stefano Raphael. Lee Luffridge on colors and Steve Wands on letters. Um, not a lot of big movement in plot on this one. It's sort of a, a setup issue in a lot of ways. Well, before I, before I get into this story, I should mention that the um, the swimsuit cover with Batman in Awful. swim trunks with gloves on and, and bat flip. Like, it, it's so... Ridiculous. I, it's ridiculous. It, it, but, but Rocky, it's so ridiculous and looks so bad. And you know he has shark repellent, bat shark repellent on his, it, in that utility belt. It's so bad and so ridiculous that I actually enjoy it. Like it's actually <laughs> so complete. Like, like we've seen Batman go in the water any number of times and he just goes in the water he doesn't take off any part of his suit. He just goes in like fully in his yeah. suit. Yeah. For this to be something it is, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. So bad. It's good. So bad. It's good. So anyway, um, as I said, the, the story, not a lot of forward movement. Uh, we know that the the tower, the Orgum Tower, whatever, b- blows up. Uh, we get information that the Orgums are, are broadcasting some sort of mind control uh, over the people of Gotham to sort of uh, denounce Batman, if you will. Um, and Arclight shows up from the vigil and prevents uh, Oracle, prevents Barbara Gordon from falling under that spell and also, Jim Gordon has had his um, in his, his head screwed up so badly over time. Poison drug, hypnotized, jokerized, brainwashed uh, that it doesn't really affect him. Um, and he goes and, and prevents uh, Commissioner Montoya from falling under that spell as well. But everybody else is sort of being brainwashed. Uh, for his part, Batman um, is going up against, you know, the, the favored son of of the Orgums. Um and he's infected, I guess you'd say. Uh, Arzen uh, affects him with an Asmir. And he has a chance to to turn to the bat god Barbados, who, you know, we were told by Ramvi early on that he was going to have a role in this series. And he's, he's shown up. It almost seems like he shows up as like a, a plot device at times rather than him really having a reason for being there. Um, but he offers Batman a chance to take help from Barbados, to take power from Barbados so that he, uh, Batman can, can fight off the Asmir. And of course, Bruce Wayne turns it down. Uh, he's not going to sell his soul. Um, you know, one, one master is as good as another in his mind, probably, or is, is as bad as uh, the other. Um, and so he's being pursued in his own mind by the, the Asmir. So where it goes from here, I guess we'll see, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting issue. It's very tightly, um, plotted. Because, I mean, you could make the argument that this entire issue takes place over a period of about five minutes 
in the actual real time in Gotham City as yeah. uh, the show is hitting the first week. Um, for, for the art, I'll say both artists do a good job, but their art styles don't really belong in the same story, to be honest with you. Uh, Yvonne Reese, you know, really heavy on the detail, really um, thin line weights. Suzuka, much heavier on the line weights, um, much more of a, almost a static style, not quite as kinetic. And even the, the layouts, the compositions of the layouts within the panels, Yvonne Reese, ha- a lot of times his panels are at an angle. You know, you're not looking at somebody, you know, straight on. They're, they're not orientated um, the way that uh, the way that Suzuka's are. Whereas, you know, Suzuka's panels are more um, traditional, I guess you'd say. They're not as dynamic. So, yeah, the art was a little uh, wonky. But I know Yvonne Reese, he's not the fastest because um, he does put so much detail. So maybe he just needed a little help. Uh, but anyway... A decent issue. Um, I will say, Detective Comics has been getting getting better because, um, man, it really really felt like the story meandered when it first started. Um, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the backup. I don't have much to say, but we'll let Rocky talk about the uh, main story first. Anything to add? Uh, yeah, this uh, this more more of this narrative is finally starting to come to fruition here, and that's what I like about it uh, because. There is a Batman at one point says something. He's fighting Prince Arzen here. And he says something to, to Prince Arzen that I think underscores, dare I say, the, the theme and uh, the message uh, of a large part of the story that's been building from the beginning. He says to Prince Arden, Arzen, he warns him because Ar- Prince Arzen is working with the, with the eye of the serpent, uh, that, that many multi-eyed woman, uh, who, and they've, uh, they're utilizing the reality engine to try to give sentience to Gotham City, to give a personality and to have Gotham City become almost like the life force of what it embodies. And it would be a fundamental change for Gotham City if that was to occur. And and Batman manages to, uh, at the end of last issue, the Organ Palace was destroyed, but uh, because Prince Arzen gave Batman a choice. Uh, the palace, you know, Organ Place will be destroyed and the people under, under Argon Palace will be killed. Or you can stop me. And while Batman made the choice to let Argon Palace be destroyed because he had already had Nightwing in place and Cassandra Kane in place to rescue uh, most of the people that were under under the under this under the surface of the Organ Place. And so all that seemed to work out. But Batman says something to Prisars Arzan as he's fighting, and he says, You cannot save a thing by changing it so fundamentally. Now, what did Batman mean by that? This is what I think he means, and this is how it relates to the story. You cannot change a thing by by you cannot change uh, you cannot save someone or change a thing by 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 uh, changing it so fundamentally and and what what the organs are trying to do to Gotham is is they're trying to save Gotham because Prince Arzen and his his originally King Orgum and Queen or- King Orgum's goal was to save something. That was part of his trial by fire. He had to save, he originally tried to save the secret uh, city of uh, Urgham, the lost city of Urgham. He needed to save something. Just like Prince Arzan, his goal is to save Gotham through the use of the reality engine. But he's not, he, he would only end up destroying it. Meanwhile, Har- you could argue that Two-Face is trying to save Harvey Dent. By trying to take over Harvey Dent, you could also argue that uh, Prince Ar- uh, that Batman is uh, that that 
Barbados is trying to save Batman by taking over Batman. And so you, you got Prince Arzen, you know, under this temptation to, to save Gotham. You got Batman under this temptation to let Barbados in. And you got Two-Face under this temptation or Harvey Dent under this temptation to let Harvey, to let Two-Face take over. And the whole idea is if you want to save something, you can't save it by fundamentally changing its nature because you, you, you end up essentially destroying it. And I think in, in, in these when you look from the very beginning of this narrative with Ram V, that's what he's been doing. He's been telling the story of Two-Face, of Batman and Barbados, of the Orgums, of the reality engine, about changing the nature of a city, giving sentience to a city. And, and the use of the Asmir to take over the mines. Like, how do you, you know, how, how are you really saving the people of Gotham if you're taking over their minds with an Asmir? You're changing them. You're forcing them. You can't force, uh, you can't force safety on people. You can't force, <laughs> you can't force yourselves on someone and then claim you're saving them. And yet that is all about what the Orgums have always done. And they've bastard, and Prince Arzen has bastardized the legacy of his family by forcing uh, his saving uh, something onto an entire city, and so I like where this is. I, I like where this is headed. Uh, we we still we we don't. Uh, um, Vandal Savage has not shown up in this issue, and we know he's going to show up in Gotham at some point. And I I'm assuming that once Batman defeats Prince Arzen, as it leads, uh, assuming he can get over the influence of Barbados, that that's where we're going to be headed in the issues to come. But I I really like the way these themes are coming together, and I think that was built upon in the backup as well, which uh, you can talk about. Uh, now, I guess. Yeah, uh, and these themes, they've, they've existed throughout. They're maybe becoming a little more apparent. Um, Ram V's not being so obtuse about it. Yeah. But, and and it's more, I'm more interested in the story than I ever have been at this point. But I still think it's taken us, it took way too long to get here. It took way too long to get here. I don't know how many issues we've had of Ram V's run. I couldn't tell you. It's, I know it's over 10, but the organs have arrived. They bought up some property. They built this tower. Like that's maybe three or four issues, maybe an arc, maybe, maybe six issues. How is it? We're like three arcs in. And we're like, I just, in the old days, this would have been like issue three of a, you know, a four or five issue arc. Yeah. We'd already be here. Like it has taken so long to get here. Um, yeah, as far as the back goes, uh, the art is fine. The, the story is fine from Dan Waters, but it's nothing like so compelling. Um, I know Rocky, you had a theory that it was the boy's mother who was I, trying to toughen him up. Um, I was right. Yeah. 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 I was right. seems like, yeah. It seems that that, that was actually the case finally got him to, to give up on the tree, um, that he was sacrificing everything else to. And, uh, yeah, I guess this sort of explains why the Orgums are who they are, but it doesn't add so much context that I really feel is necessary. I still would rather not have the backup and pay a dollar less for the book. Um, yeah. Because here's the thing. I don't find the Orgums to be particularly original or particularly interesting, um, uh, you know, as villains, so – Anyway, what are, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, well, one thought, just when young Prince Arzen, he, he was fascinated. He was obsessed with preserving his tree and his one bodyguard, uh, Asim, uh, died uh, trying to, to protect Prince Arzen and protect, protect, pr pr protect the tree that 
young Prince Arzen was was nurturing and growing. And he gave his life. And you can really see the, the change, the, the change in Prince Arzen, where he, uh, one of the three assassins, they caught two of the assassins and the third one was hiding in the field. Prince Arzen was so angry and filled with vengeance that he started the entire field on fire just so he could kill that one assassin. But in order to do that, not only would the field with the with not only would the field of fire kill the assassin it would also destroy his tree and he didn't care it destroyed his tree and yeah, he even and, says ah, tree he finally is willing to yeah. admit ah, the tree and it's and it's really sad because it sort of reflects the death of his you know the death of his innocence and the birth of of him as being really hardcore and it's it's another i think it, it ties into that theme as well is that you you know you can't you can't this, you can't save someone like his mother, his mother wasn't, you know, wasn't trying to save him. She was manipulating him and pushing him and destroying him. And, and that's, and that's the sad part. Just like you, the Orgums, you know, it's sad that on the father's side of the Orgums, Prince Arzen wants to force change by, by saving someone. And his mother, instead of saving his son, basically manipulates him to essentially destroy his soul, making him become sort of like the evil bastard that he grows up to be. And it's really, really tragic. And it really shows Prince Arzen to be the sort of tragic figure that that he is. And especially if you want to compare him to Bruce Wayne, because it's very interesting that Prince Arzen at one point when he's fighting Bruce Wayne in the main story, he's surprised to discover that Batman knows who he is. And of course, we, we as readers know that Bruce Wayne has enough intuition to figure out that uh, Prince Arzen uh, w was the one who was wielding that mask. And so once again, it's just, uh, I will say, I, you and I both had our complaints about the backups in this series, uh, because I think a number of them, especially me, uh, I had a hard time figuring out their connection. But this this one with Prince Arzen was by far the most straightforward. That's probably why I figured it out. But, but I, I enjoyed this backup because I think it really highlights and is necessary to get a better understanding of Prince Arzen, and it works. Yeah, I mean, if you say anything about it, it basically it illustrates exactly what Bruce is saying, right? You can't change something to save it, right? You can't fundamentally change what it is because that's ultimately what Prince Arzen's mother does, right? She fundamentally – he's saved the tree, saved the tree, saved the tree. The tree is the representation of my relationship with my father. Once the tree is destroyed – Prince Arzen is no longer the same boy that he was. So in trying to save him and trying to toughen him up so that he will survive, yeah. his mother has really has killed her little boy or at least who he was. Yeah. And he's become something. So completely illustrates what Bruce was. And, and we should indicate that her, his mother, Queen Orgum made a music box out of the wood of that tree, uh, which, which was the music box that was that, at the beginning of the series where they talked about the sound and the, 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 the metaphysical nature of sound and what have you, which I never quite really understood. But <laughs> again, Ram V is really diving deep here. And all, all these, all these little connections, plot threads are slowly coming together, which I'm sure if, if, if I read this as a trade, the connections would be more prevalent, but because we're separated by weeks here over 10, 10 or so weeks, it's kind of hard to remember or 10 or so months. It's hard to remember everything. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. All right. Up next, we have Batman, the brave and the bold number two, starting off with Batman, the winning card part two, Tom King's the writer, Mitch Garrods does art and colors, Talon letters. Stormwatch, Down with the Kings, Part 2. Ed Brisson is the writer. 
Jeff Spokes, Art and Colors, Seda Timofonte on Letters, Superman Order of the Black Lamp, Part 2, Christopher Cantwell, Writer, Javier Rodriguez, Art and Colors, Simon Bullen on Letters, and then All Things Considered by Joel Jones, Story and Art with Simon, uh, Simon, uh, sorry, Steve Wands on Letters. So uh, kicking it off with the Joker story, I mean, absolutely gorgeous uh, from Mitch Garrett's as we come to expect from him. Smart dialogue from um, from Tom King. I love the choice that they make to not even have the Joker on the panel when he's speaking. We just get these black panels with some um, kind of filigree along the edges and some text telling us what the Joker is saying. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a Joker story. And I could definitely do without more Joker stories. So it, it's okay. Um the thing I was sort of left with is how the the Joker – and again, we know it's Batman early in his career, but Batman sets up the Joker. The Joker falls for it and shows up where Batman expects him to. And then when Batman thinks he has him cornered, the Joker jumps out like the second-story window. Uh, Batman can't stop him. He manages to get to a car and start driving off. Again, Batman can't stop him. And then um, – Batman uses his grappling gun to latch onto the car and kind of gets jacked up, if you will, as the Joker sort of driving around. Um, and then the Joker proceeds to kick the crap out of him. So it, it kind of bothers me. Uh, you know, I've said this before, and I get it. It's Batman at the beginning of his career. But the Joker is just a dude. He's just a guy. He's just a skinny guy without any muscles, really. He's, and if Bruce Wayne, even at this point you know, early in his career, but he's traveled the world, right, to make himself into a human weapon. And the Joker physically beats him, like physically, you know, wins the fight. It's just, it, it, it bugs me. It just bugs me. And I get it. Well, you've got to make the Joker seem formidable and dangerous to Batman, but it, it just doesn't sit right with me. So for me, this is, I know, and I know a lot of people love it. And don't get me wrong. I'm friends with Tom King. I'm friends with Mitch Garrett's. Nothing against the effort that they're putting out because, again, gorgeous book, well-paced, well-plotted. I'm just sick of the Joker. So uh, that's all I'm going to say. It's totally <laughs> on me that this is not, you know, the the fantastic story that everybody else seems to really enjoy. It, it's well done. Technically, a very well-put-together comic, well-paced, all that. It's just not speaking to me because I'm just fed up and sick to death of the Joker. So uh, what are your thoughts on it, Rocky? Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm a little, I'm more forgiving of it precisely because I'm real, you know, I'm embracing the fact that this was really Batman year one or his, his first encounter with the Joker where, where I, I choose to believe and, uh, in, in my own head canon that, you know, Batman is still, he's cocky. He's come off as, you know, he's, he's never really faced a, a formidable villain yet. He's, and this is his first encounter with the Joker. And even the way he sets Joker up, he's extremely confident. I mean, he, the way he talks to the Alfred, you know, when he, when he pretends to, he, he sort of recruits and, and actually uses, Bruce Wayne openly uses another uh, a billionaire, alpha male billionaire in Gotham named Brute Nelson and just to call Joker out and say, you can't, you know, because the Joker successfully manages to kill another uh, mis this Mr. Wild character at the beginning. Well, Bruce Wayne, like Batman sets him up by using another one of his fellow billionaires, which I think is a very sloppy, dangerous thing for Batman to do. I don't, th I don't see uh, an experienced modern day Batman years later 
endangering other lives like he did that like he did to the to brute nelson here in this issue but i can see a first year batman doing that uh, not to interrupt but do you see the, the one other thing that bugged me i forgot to mention do you see the gcpd like searching the entire house and nobody bothered to look in the suit of armor yeah like nobody lifted, <laughs> yeah like yeah. you don't think he's in there you know like if you're hanging out for hours at a time next to a suit of armor somebody's going to go over there and peek or you're going to notice well, suit of armor is like breathing like uh, i just thought it was lame yeah anyways, yeah sorry. it was well i guess it's the old story you know the best place to hide is in plain sight right but i it's in you know in in this particular day and age in the early years you know i i can buy it and i i did think i i think given the fact that this is a uh, the first encounter with the joker i think i i did have fun with it and I, I even thought it was interesting. It's, I'm, I'm going to be curious. I actually curious to hear your thoughts. The way that Bruce Wayne sounded when he when he called and was talking to Brute Nelson and was trying to set Brute Nelson up, and the way he was pretending and say, "Yeah, awesome, dude. Yeah." So I'm thinking, like, you know, because I'm Bruce Wayne, but I'm trying to for my reputation. I was thinking to call this Joker out, and he was deliberately goading Brute Nelson to steal his idea to goad the Joker. And I thought that was really interesting because I've never. To my knowledge, I, I don't remember a time where Bruce Wayne ever talked like that in any other iteration or any other story. Because Bruce Wayne always sort of, you know, was sort of like a cocky, arrogant kind of uh, older man, or, you know, you know, sophisticated man. Here he sounds a little bit more like almost like a, an older, a, a young man, like a young 20 something wanting to be uh you know, having a little bit too much testosterone and almost surprisingly insecure for a rich guy. In other words, what I'm saying is I think Tom King actually scripted Bruce Wayne well. This is Batman pretending to be kind of like a dick billionaire and sounding like his other, how he thinks other fellow billionaires look. And he's he's playing the role. He's actually, uh, Tom King is actually scripting Bruce Wayne being as manipulative as Batman has been, which I think... I, I'd like, you know, we need to see more of in many ways. And, and I actually, I actually didn't mind that aspect of it. It's going to be curious to see how many people vehemently disagree with me in terms of, in terms of the dialogue and the voice that King gave Bruce Wayne, but it was on purpose. Uh, Bruce Wayne was sounding that way on purpose to get under Brute Nelson's goad and to goad him into doing, uh, to set him up so he could, as Batman, he could take out the Joker. And I thought it, uh, I, I thought it was interesting and I, uh, I, I actually thought it worked. I also, I'm sorry, but these jokes were funny. I can't be the, I'm, I, I, these jokes were hilarious. Some of them I laughed out loud. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, my girlfriend's dog died and she took it really hard. So I tried to make her feel better by buying her an identical dog. But that just made her more upset. She shouted at me, why would I want two dead dogs? Uh, I mean, that's funny. That's funny. And and the other jokes in here are, 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 are funny too. Uh, I mean, bit, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, no, but I mean, there are multiple jokes here that uh, I, I love the way that they're sort of the di Joker's dialogue is is just on that blank, you know, uh, entire panels are dedicated to the Joker's dialogue. And it really works here, I think, because it shows that this being the first time that Batman is encountering the Joker, it's giving the illusion. We don't get to see the Joker say those words. We just see blackness because because the Joker's an unknown enemy. Batman, all that Batman really, really sees is those words. He hears the Joker, but he doesn't really know the Joker. And he finds out the hard way. He really underestimates the Joker. I mean, he has to know Joker is definitely going to jump out the window. He, he, you know, obviously an experienced Batman would be far more aggressive up front immediately and not sort of like 
you know, play the role like he's Batman. And the way Batman sort of gave a speech when he first encountered the Joker here, telling him that I'm not afraid of you and all this other a Batman with more experience would not sit there and engage in, in long, drawn-out dialogue with the Joker. He would put him down and make sure he's incapacitated before he starts talking to him. So I, I like the way Tom King scripted it here, that, that this was a, a truly an inexperienced Batman. His inexperience shows, all the while, Bat, uh, the Joker is telling jokes and ultimately wins at the end of the day when he jumps dumps Batman over a bridge. And that's something. And... I don't know. I, I think the more I talk about it, the more I, I actually I'm enjoying it all the more. Yeah, and I probably would be too if it wasn't for the fact that we've had jokers on our throats for the past decade. <laughs> yeah. so. uh, all right, moving on. Up next, we have the um, Stormwatch. Stormwatch story. Uh, really enjoy the art from Jeff Spokes, and I love the interaction that we get um, in bet- uh, you know between the characters. Ed Brisson, he's written a lot of team books in the past. He does a fantastic job of giving us great interaction between Shadow and uh, Peacekeeper One and Ravager. Uh, really interesting. I, I actually love the design of these squid creatures uh, and uh, other. I, I guess they're not squid creatures, but they're they're sort of um, humanoid marine life. You know, one looks like a squid, one looks like a crab, looks like I don't I don't even know what it's supposed to be a turtle maybe with a shell. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. It almost looks like it's out of that uh, the Johnny Depp movie there, that one villain on the Johnny Depp movie, uh, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Uh, but it's it's an isn't it Exabellion? It's a enemies of the Atlanteans. They're, they call themselves the sect. They're basically oh, right. Okay, kind of yeah, Zabellian um, <laughs> Zabellians who've been infected by the the power of the blade itself. Um, that they're searching for and, and have been given these powers sort of merged with different sea yeah, The animals. Dead Sea so, Blade. Yeah, the Dead Sea Blade. So super interesting, action-packed. Uh, we, in a way, we still have more questions than answers. And it does feel like it's moving along really quickly. And I won't say go so far as to say it's choppy um, because the first issue was well-paced. This issue is well-paced. It's how did you get from <laughs> part one of the story to part two? That's where we are missing a little, um, a little context. But I, I get it. There's limited space, and Ed's trying to tell the story he's telling. So, yeah, I enjoy this version of Stormwatch, and it's always great to see Mister Bones, who, regardless of iteration, just seems to be a dick, um, which you some come to sort of expect from him. Um, you know, a, a cigarette smoking skull uh, is going to be an ass. He is. So, uh, I don't have a whole heck of a lot of. History reading Stormwatch, um, so I can't speak to how longtime fans of the the property might um, might view this, but it's definitely new reader friendly uh, yeah. if you're willing to just dive right in. Because again, there's going to be some you're going to have some questions, uh, especially based on like I said that transition from issue one to issue two. So, uh, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Uh, I I really loved I love the banter between Ravager and Phantom One which was really good. Uh, Ravager tells Phantom, asks Phantom One, what's your real name? And Phantom One says, I don't, I don't want to tell you my real name. I like to keep secrets. And uh, she, and, uh, and uh, she, you know, and, uh, you know, she goes, well, he goes, does the shadow tell you her real name? And she goes, well, 
no, well, Shadow is her name. <laughs> so, <laughs> he goes, well, mine's Phantom One. And in any event, you could tell that this is a team that's just getting to know each other and they're not really sure how they feel about each other. They don't really know whether or not they re really want to trust each other. But between Ravager, Phantom One, Peacekeeper One and Shadow, and Peacekeeper One and Shadow decide to drink some scotch together while they're on the boat there. And then uh, Flint and this Cove character, they're on there while all of a sudden they're attacked. They're attacked by these uh, these creatures, Zabellians of the sect, and they they have the uh, they have this uh, this Dead Sea blade, and it's this. It, unfortunately, it, it's also a virus, and the virus lasts for seventy two hours, and it, it feeds this virus feeds on salt water, and when it affects a human, it uh, it usually dies out within seventy two hours because human being human bodies have a limited amount of salt in them, uh, but it can kill a lot of people in seventy two hours. But if this virus gets into the ocean, it could literally potentially wipe out presumably all of Atlantis because it's a very deadly virus. And uh, what's hilarious here is, you know, it's funny, Jace, I was going to ask you what you think of director Bones, because we know, we know how you feel about Amanda Waller being a complete, uh, you know, you, we know how you, you love Amanda Waller, but director Bones here, he, the, the, the ship, the captain of the ship is this poor guy named Pedro. <laughs> And uh, they want, they need a live specimen of this virus in order to cure it. And, and uh, Dr. Director Bones says to, says to Flint, hey, Flint, I want you to take the Dead Sea Blade and stab Pedro with it. And it's okay if he dies. Uh, by the way, Pedro was kind of an asshole. He was a jerk. He's, uh, he's, he was kidnapping p kids and immigra immigra immigrants, and he was dumping them in the ocean for cash. I'm just telling you that so you have no problem stabbing him with, the dead sea, with this Dead Sea Sword. <laughs> ends up Pedro ends up getting killed anyway, and then at the end it ends up that the, the actual live specimen ends up being uh, Peacekeeper One himself, <laughs> who was stabbed with the Dead Sea bait at the end of it. So he's going to be the one that they experiment on to try to find a cure for this virus, and that's the next issue. Uh, I got to give a shout out to Jeff Spokes. The Jeff Spokes. Uh, the the art here is the best art of any comic this week. I absolutely love it. He's a master at just action sequences. Uh, of of just the the way that he draws the action the the choreography on the page and it's it's just absolutely gorgeous he also does the colors god i want jeff spoke jeff spokes to do a, do his own art and continue to do his own colors it's really fantastic and this was uh really uh, i i wish this was its own comic book it really was cuz i'm actually not collecting this series in physical form uh, but if it was just a stormwatch comic i would be buying the stormwatch comic i really would i it's that uh it's that good. And I, you know, this is, this is what I wish, I wish that Wildcats was more akin to this because I'm already more invested in this story uh, that uh, Ed Brisson has put together than I am with uh, uh, Wildcats. Although Ed Brisson on, on Batman Incorporated is pretty good too, but I, I, I find myself more, 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 in, more attracted to Stormwatch and what he's got going on here. Yeah, I mean, here's a, here's for me the biggest difference between Bones and Amanda Waller. Well, there's two. First of all, director Bones, although he's been showing up more lately, we don't get him anywhere near the amount that we get Amanda Waller. Amanda Waller shows up in every comic every month, shoved down our throat. So that that's part of the reason I just I'm done. I'm over it. The other part is that at no time ever in the history of director Bones has he ever pretended to be anything but a complete jackass, right? The guy started off as a supervillain. So, you know, I, I have less of a hard time with him. Um, and also he, he, he owns that, right? Like he, he'll tell people right to their face what he's going to do. 
part of what I dislike so much about Amanda Waller is the fact that she's a liar. She's so duplicitous and she'll just lie right to the face of, of anybody, right? And she justifies that by saying, oh, they're a villain. They're a bad person. Why should I tell them the truth? Bones is just blunt. He just says says it like it is. And like him or not, you know, at least he has the decency to, you know, say it like it is, as opposed to Amanda Waller, who sneaks around and lies and is a, you know, total scumbag and disgusting excuse for a human being. So uh, <laughs> that's the big difference in my mind. Uh, anyway, up next, we have the Superman story from Christopher Cantwell. It, it's really interesting getting uh, Superman to narrate the second half of the story. Uh, basically, he's <laughs> he's supposed to be dictating um, what he's doing, narrating what he's doing in uh, infiltrating this secret headquarters within a mountain to look for Hop Harrigan. It speaks a lot to kind of the older comics and how Christopher Cantwell's become a big fan of the old, you know, older books and older characters that don't show up a lot. This definitely has a pulp feel when you talk about, you know, a secret headquarters in the middle of a, a mountain and uh, the, the art definitely showcases that. And again, you talk about golden, a golden age character like Hop Harrigan. And uh, so it's, it's real interesting. It definitely has that sort of Saturday afternoon serial um, kind of noirish feel. Uh, that and I, that's intentional, and from the dialogue to the pacing to the art, I think the entire creative team—that's what they're going for, and they're succeeding on a a very high level of uh, of putting that across. So a lot of credit to Javier Rodriguez, the artist. Uh, he also does the colors. So uh, it's an interesting story, um, but. We, it hasn't moved. We haven't got a lot of answers yet. You know, being that it's that Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon matinee serial, um, you know, Lone Ranger, Zorro, those kind of things. Uh, this this it, second part does end a, on a little bit of a cliffhanger. Um, and so there's always going to be that feel. There's always going to be a little bit of that mystery. Um, this one ending with Superman finding Hop Harrigan. Um, and I really I'm really enjoying it. Um, you know, starting off with this very mysterious and ancient ring that comes into Superman's possession and it leads him on this adventure. And and that's what you really feel like it is, right? It is an adventure. Um, And for that matter, you know, I'm talking about Zora. I'm talking about Lone Ranger. I'm talking about this kind of pulp things, Indiana Jones, Rocky mentioned earlier. Um, Superman himself, he had Saturday matinee serials and, you know, maybe that's the best thing to compare it to very much like the Saturday afternoon, uh, Saturday matinee uh, Superman serials of, uh, of the, well, I guess it would have been the forties, early forties, late thirties, early forties. So, uh, yeah, really enjoying this. What'd you think, Rock? Uh, yeah, I actually, Javier Rodriguez's art reminds me of Tim sales. This reminded me of Superman for all seasons. It had, it had shades of that, the art. And, uh, it, for that reason, it, it actually, it pulled me in. And because the, the first issue of brave and the bold, I, I, Never. I just sort of. I frankly just skim. I only read really the the Joker issues and skim read the rest of it. And uh, this was good. Yeah, this is. It's entertaining. I still my, my, my this is a this is an entertaining story. 
this is a good Superman story. I like the art. I like. I, I'm. I'm curious as to you know what happened to Tank Tinker. What what's going to happen to Hop Harrigan? How, why is he still alive after 75 years? Why is it that it appears that the rest of the world has forgotten about him? What happened? This is almost reminds me of like a dinosaur island. It reminds me. It's got a little bit of a new frontier. Darwin Cookfield sort of slash Tim Sale. I mean, it, I I really like the way the feels here, and I think Chris Cat, uh, Christopher Cantwell's done. He's done a good job here, and I'm curious to see where where it goes. It might, uh, frankly, I can see all of these stories, individual stories, being really good, just individual comic books themselves. I just wish Stormwatch was separate, the Superman thing was separate, I guess. But um, I I might find myself, if I'm not careful, talking myself into buying the damn issue. But uh, I've, uh, you know, damn, there's so many comic books out there. When I got to make it, I got to make a decision. I got to stick to it, you know. But in any event. I thought it was. I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was well done, and uh, yeah, it's. A, this was. A, I think so far, this is actually a better issue than the than the first issue was. Yeah, and the last story really interesting as well. Joel Jones black and white art, and it's uh, it's really interesting. It's called Scars, and basically a bunch of sort of double page spreads here um, of Bruce sort of thinking back on events of his life where he's gotten all these scars and she definitely draws him all, all scarred up. Um, so we have some double page montage. Well, I guess one double page montage, but a lot of single page montages as well. Uh, not a lot of dialogue, but there is sort of a heartfelt moment between uh, Alfred and Bruce that sort of harkens back to Alfred comforting him when he first lost his parents. So uh, it's a short story. There's not a lot to it, but it's really just a chance for Joel Jones to show off her incredible artwork. Um, and she is an incredible artist. I think the problem with her art and, and her writing is I just think, um, it just, she's so detailed and it's so gorgeous, but it doesn't lend itself to a monthly schedule. That's where, where she kind of falls down. I think that was a problem with her Catwoman run. And that was a problem with Yara Floor. She's just, um, time-wise, um, she's just not suited to do a monthly book. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, a lot of these artists nowadays are, are so detailed, it's nearly impossible for them to draw an entire comic in uh, in a month, you know, unless they're working 12, 14 hour days. And that's that's just not reasonable, <laughs> not for the amount of money these artists are paid. So um, absolutely gorgeous. I'm, I mean, I'm a big fan of black and white art that really shows the technique of the artist. And this certainly does the, that. So what were your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's there's one. You know, my favorite page is is actually the single page where it shows uh, Bruce Wayne exhausted in front of the bat and the bat computer behind him. Absolutely phenomenal. I mean, Joel Jones. There were some issues that Joel Jones drew with in her Wonder Girl series that just were tr- tremendously disappointing, and you could tell she never had near enough time to to, to work on them. And a lot, of, and then it, when she wasn't being replaced by Adriana Mello, who was trying to duplicate her art and did even a less than stellar job, Joelle Jones is a fantastic artist when she when she's given the time to show off her uh, God given abilities, and she's she's really good here. And this is a just a beautiful 
just a beautiful short story and it's got a point and it's got a message and i mean just the detail on the back of bruce wayne the scars literally on his back and on that on that opening page i mean it just sort of pulls you in and you want to just stare at every page when you can literally be entertained just looking at the details i mean you could literally go i mean look behind him on on the page you can stare at the images on the back various bat monitors computer monitors behind bruce wayne and just you know sort of sort of decipher what What's going on? What is he seeing? And and you can see the exhaustion on Bruce Wayne. You can see uh, the 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 I guess the the reflections. Each one of those scars is a story that he could tell, and it's just really well done. And all through the art, no really, you know, no dialogue except for the last page. But frankly, the dialogue no dialogue was needed on the last page. We didn't need the dialogue. It was superfluous. We didn't need it. And but you know, and that's thanks to Joel Jones' art. But well done. Yeah, hundred percent, fantastic, uh, just just gorgeous art. Uh, all right, up next we have Action Comics number one thousand fifty six, main story Ex Machina, uh, wrapping up this arc, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, art by Rafa Sandoval and Max Rayner, colors by Matt Herms, letters by Dave Sharp, um, and then we, I, I, I sort of, I was so in kind of involved in the first story as I was reading it. Um, and thinking about the way it, it tied up this Metallo arc, I, I sort of forgot <laughs> that there were, uh, you know, other stories in here. And so, yeah, we do have the the second story, the Lois and Clark story, written by Dan Jurgens. Lee Weeks handles the art on that. Elizabeth Brightweiser on colors, and then Rob Lee on letters. And then we finish it up with the uh, the Steelwork story from writer Durar- Dorado Dorado Quick. Um, art by Yasmin Flores Montanez, colors by Brad Anderson, and letters by Dave Sharp. Quick and Montanez from the uh, Milestone Initiative as well. Uh, and even though it was out of order, this is part three, Steel Engineer of Tomorrow. This three-part story leads into the Steelworks, of which we've already had the first issue written by Michael Dorn of, uh, of Star Trek fame. So anyway, um, to talk about the, the end of the first arc here, um, the first arc of Superman back on earth um, from Philip Kennedy Johnson and this Metallo arc and Superman sort of leveled up. Um, what did you think of this one, Rock? Uh, it, it was okay. It was okay. I, I do have to say, I do have a slight bias because I'm not a huge fan of the Superman family as a concept, to be honest. I, I've, I've, and I, and I, I've actually changed my opinion over the years because I, I, I have, in mint condition, I'm pretty sure they range in age, range in grade from 9.2 to 9.8. The original, the thick Superman family comics from the 70s, the dollar comics, I have those in pristine condition, and I, I want to get them graded. And I, I love them, and I read them religiously as a kid. Uh, and but uh, to me, I, I think the Superman family is just too big. But maybe that's just that's just me being my old and uh, conservative and set in my my. my I'm still caught in the late 1970s or early 1980s. But in any event, uh, this is uh, PKJ has it. uh, He he works with all the Superman family very well. He's very, very good at handling far too many Superman family members. And uh, I don't I don't think we need the Super Twins. I don't think we need uh, I don't think we need all these Connor Kent, all these other characters and Kara and all that other jazz. I think it muddies the waters of a story, quite frankly, because it ends up being very, very plot driven and it's very plot centric. But 
again, as a compliment to PKJ, he turns around and he actually manages to say something meaningful in all this. And, you know, Cyborg Superman comes along and Cyborg Superman has been the one that has changed and, and changed Metallo and, and incorporated War World Tech into Metallo and into Metallo, John Corbin's sister, Tracy Corbin. And he's sort of, he manipulated Metallo that way by threatening the life of his sister. And here we've got Superman and the twins and, you know, taking on Cyborg Superman and who, who want, who wants to basically kill the twins, kill Superman. And he's powered up by all the War World Tech uh, that he, so and he was powered. He, he also got additional power from a white sun. And meanwhile, you know, while the cyborg Superman he is fighting uh, Kalal and and the and the twins, he's his his cronies or his I guess his his drones are fighting in in a in a town. They're actually fighting the rest of the Superman family: Connor, Kent, uh, Kenan, uh, Keenan, and Supergirl. And all of it comes to a head. All of it comes to a head when ultimately uh, Superman defeats Cyborg Superman, mainly because Connor Kent uses his telekinesis to screw up the electrical uh, uh, the the electrical control that Cyborg Superman had over his drones that weakened the Cyborg Superman, and ultimately uh, Kal El defeats uh, Cyborg Superman, but not before uh, Tracy. Uh, ends up getting Tracy Corbin ends up getting very uh, grievously wounded. Uh, by by steel of all people, uh, John Henry Irons has to incapacitate uh, Tracy Corbin, and she ends up getting injured. And it uh, you know Superman to to the end you know Superman at the end you know he uses steelworks to steelworks is used to basically incarcerate uh, Metallo, and his sister is also there. And there's some really touching moments between John Corbin and his sister, Tracy, where John Cor Corbin tells his sister, look, you know, you know, his sister tells him, I'm a monster now, just like you. And, and he he knows he's a monster, but you can tell that something's changed in John Corbin, that he his sister, you know, he, he basically tells his sister that, look, I, I was who I was even before what happened to us when we were younger. Uh, but you were always something special. You, you 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 don't have to be like me, and it, it's a huge awakening for John Corbin. It, it's a huge amount of self awareness that he comes to a realization that that he was always who he was. In other words, he was always kind of bad, and he had that bad gene in him. And he can't. He stopped blaming maybe all the people in his past for what he's become, and he's he's starting to take personal responsibility for who he is. And even uh, John, even Kalal at the end says that, you know, Tracy Corbin needs her brother, and John Corbin's going to surprise us someday. And you know, because Superman believes in people, believes in the best of them. And just as a quick aside, I just want to point out that Superman, this is this is actually, Superman is being written like Wonder Woman should be written because it's Wonder Woman that's supposed to be bringing out the best in her enemies, not necessarily Superman. Not saying they can't both do it, but Wonder Woman is the one that should be doing it more often because it's more of her uh, mythology. But that's, that's a quick aside. That'll never happen because Wonder Woman is probably always going to be questionably written but hopefully tom king will change that but that's a quick digression uh but no i i, I didn't mind the main story so what, what did you think of the main story before we go to the next one? Oh, you're on mute sorry then yeah sorry about that uh for all the build-up it did feel a little anticlimactic um 
but I did appreciate the angst and the fact that it was Metallo that got to, to take out Cyborg Superman, literally ripping his, his body in half. Um, it's interesting. I, I sort of have mixed feelings. Like I, I love Superman. I love the Superman family and I am enjoying this, but at the same time, there are times and in this story, particularly this story arc really where Superman almost feels like an afterthought in the book. Um, because it it's just hard, right? You, when you have this many characters to give everybody the spotlight. I mean, this is action comics. It is the flagship title. It is Superman's book. Um, but he didn't have the best moment. Like the best moments for, were from Metallo and they were from uh, Con, or, uh, John Kent, right? Disrupting that signal, like Rocky said. So yeah, I enjoyed it. It was great to see them win the day against Cyborg Superman. Um, but I enjoy the, the previous issue more. Um, they, they, they sort of defeated him. And I know it wasn't meant to feel this way, but it sort of felt like they defeated him relatively easily. So we'll see what the long-term effects of him are. Um, I enjoyed the second story a lot more, the Dan Jurgen story. We know that Galena, this uh, alien ruler, if you will, is trying to put down a rebellion to trick John into, into helping her and then kidnapped him. And now Superman is is gone to the planet and she basically tells him, Hey, John's in this lead box. There's 120 of those lead boxes buried all around the world. You don't know which one he's in. Go and put down this rebellion uh, or I'm going to kill him. And uh, that's basically where we're at. So a lot of stakes, really great art from Lee Weeks. Um, And uh, it's, if you're missing the young John Kent, missing the stories that you would get from young John Kent, one of those people that just can't let it go. This is the book. This is the story you need to be reading because it's uh, very much a young John Kent inexperienced making mistakes. And it's Clark getting a chance, Superman getting a chance to be a father. So, um, and Lee Weeks, who's a, you know, one of the best living visual storytellers in comics. So uh, absolutely fantastic. What'd you think? I really liked it. I, I, I just wish out of all the stories, I really hope they collect this John Kent story by Dan Jurgens and Lee Weeks in, into their own, into its own graphic novel or trade paperback or whatever, because it's, it's a lot of fun. And I love that Superman is uh, j- transported, you know, Gliana h- helps transport Superman through a, a wormhole to her world where she's got, she's hidden John Kent She's hidden young John uh, in, in a lead container. And I instantly thought, how stupid are you, Gliana? Superman could easily find lead because it's the only thing he can't see through. But she's not quite that stupid. She's got 120 lead containers and John Kent's in one of them somewhere on her planet. So Superman knows, he knows the, he can probably, we know immediately, locate where the 120 lead containers are located. And, but it's John Kent, uh, he, he knows enough about his son that John's, John, even young John Kent is not an idiot. He only becomes an idiot after uh, he is in the volcano for seven years and comes back. Then he's an idiot. But that's another story. But this was a, during a time when John Kent was still really smart. And he's like hitting the sides of the cage, lead walls. And he knows that his father eventually will be able to hear him because his father, uh, you know, John or Superman is actually pretending to keep the forces at bay and protecting Gliana. So he's sort of playing the role while with his super hearing, trying to pick up some sounds that are out of the ordinary around one 
one of those 120 lead boxes that he knows his son is in one of them. And so it ends with John Kent losing oxygen, but before he loses oxygen, he makes one final slamming his body into the side of the lead container wall, hoping that it will have some effect. And that's how that, that particular, this particular story ends uh, on yet another cliffhanger. This is uh, very well done by Dan Jurgens. It's, it's a lot of fun. Great, great John Kent story. And again, you know, looking forward to the, looking forward to the next chapter. Yeah, I thought the same thing when Glenna said she hit him in a um, in a lead container. I immediately thought of um, 1986 or 87 when John Byrne rebooted Superman, Superman 9, that yeah. famous cover of Joker on the cover drip, uh, drawn by John Byrne wearing the Superman costume. Yeah. And Joker did the same thing. He kidnapped somebody, put him in a lead coffin, stuck him somewhere in the city because there was that misunderstanding when Superman first came on the scene. They thought he couldn't see lead. Yeah. It's actually the opposite, right? Like you put him in lead. It's the one thing he can't see through. Uses his X-ray vision to scan the city and it points, you know, stands out like a sore thumb. Um, So I immediately thought of that, that it's one of my favorite issues because I love that cover. Um, And so, but yeah, Glenna didn't, didn't make the same mistake. And I'm sure Jurgens knows that story as well, being a long time Superman. So uh, he, he was, he gave Glenna, uh, more uh, capability than that. Uh, as far as the steel story, it, it's okay. <laughs> sort of, uh, it reminded me of a classic Marvel story where you get hero, give heroes an excuse to fight. Uh, I do like the dynamic and the interaction between John Henry Irons and uh, and Mister Terrific. The only thing I didn't like was when Amalgam comes and attacks, looking for steel. Natasha's there. She's the current steel. He's like, I don't want to fight you. I want the real steel, basically. John Henry Irons takes him on with his giant hammer um, without the armor, which, you know, he, he, John Henry Irons is like his, if, if he has a superpower, it's his intellect, right? He's not, he doesn't have super strength, but yet he lists this giant hammer without the aid of his, <laughs> you know, arm. So that was a little problematic. And then, when he attacks Amalgam uh, and he sort of loses control, that, that seemed a little out of character. I've never seen John Henry Irons lose control like that before. You know, Mister, he and he, he regains control, you know, relatively quickly. Um, both Natasha and and Mister Terrific call out to him, and he, and he realizes, oh, you know, what am I doing? But it was still a little wonky. Even Amalgam himself, you know, he goes from being, you know, this badass supervillain to being like, oh, please stop. Um, and it was just so it was so abrupt. It was just so abrupt. Um, that that fight between the two. It's like Amalgam shows up. Uh, he, he you know trades a punch or two with Natasha, and then all of a sudden it's the splash page. John Henry Irons. This is my house. Not only wielding this giant hammer with no armor and no super strength, but leaping off the ground with it toward Amalgam, and then smacking him down. And th- and that's the fight. So, it, yeah, it was a little. Like, were we, were, are we supposed to believe that Amalgam is any sort of threat at all? Because he certainly didn't seem to be. Uh, he seemed to be defeated so easily by a non-armored John Henry Irons. So that it was just, it was a little wonky to me. Um, that being said, you know, like I mentioned before, we did review the first issue of Steelworks already by Michael Dorn, and we both, Rocky and I both really enjoyed it. So um, kind of a little weird to me here that this, Part three that leads into that comes out after it. But what are your thoughts on this uh, steel story? I I just thought it was a little bit kind of sort of 
boring, you know, but but then it, I guess it wasn't, but it just seems, it, it does seem kind of forced. But in defense of writer uh, Dorado Quick, who I'm not really familiar with, it, it's it's all well and good. He doesn't have a lot of pages to work with. And, and quite frankly, I, I mean, even Michael Dorn's first issue of Steelworks, you know, it's still, a lot of it is still set up. Quite frankly, we don't really know a heck of a lot about John Henry Irons, really, and Natasha. There, there's a lot to explore there, uh, but it's still... It's still a character that I view has a lot, a lot of potential. The fact that we got Mr. Terrific showing up here for really no apparent reason other than just to say hi, do a good job, seems kind of a little bit silly. And, um, you know, just, just the way of uh, a token attempt to get yet another black character to make an appearance just for reasons so you can check off a box. It just didn't, I don't, I don't think it actually worked all that well, to be honest. But what is cool, though, we get the Hall of Hammers. That's cool. The Hall of Hammers, I like that. <laughs> I mean, that to me, I think the entire, you know, the, the, this entire, the last two or three issues dealing with Steelworks should have been focused on the Hall of Hammers and the origins of all these hammers and, and why is he building so many hammers? Why does he have so many hammers? It's like Peacemaker. Why does Peacemaker have so many helmets? Well, each helmet can do something different. So are these hammers all different too? What do they do? I'd really like to know. I'd like to, I'd, I would have, I would rather have seen a story with all these hammers. That would have been kind of cool, you know, as opposed to just a bunch of, you know, sort of like plodding. This is, you know, this is what I, this is what I am. This is what I stand for. We kind of already know what you stand for, John. We know you're a cool hero. You got a cool daughter there. You're, you're an awesome guy. You know, let's, you know, show me some hammers. You know, it's hammer time. It might be a little cliche, but let's have some fun with it. But in any event, I hope to see more hammers uh, in uh, Steelworks moving forward. <laughs> yeah, it's just for clarity, Natasha's his niece, not his daughter. Oh, I, that's right. Thank you. But yeah, I agree with you about the hammers. It reminded me uh, of Iron Man, right? Yeah, because John Henry Irons, genius, you know, has a tech company. We know Tony Stark's been known to build Iron Man armors for specific um, specific missions. So did John Henry Irons do the same thing? Uh, yeah. So yeah. maybe for a future a future issue. Yeah, I got, I got uh, a question for you. I got a question for you before we leave. Did you happen to know who the because uh, the the Blue Earth terrorists in in that are that Superman is dealing with? Uh, there was I wanted to show. Do you know who this character was? The leader of the the Blue Earth terrorists is that that looks like Black Alice. Is that who that is, or is that another character? Do you know? I don't, I don't think so. I don't I don't know who it is, but I don't think it's Black Alice. I, because yeah. Black Alice Black Alice have like multicolored hair. Not, it's not like dark. I guess. Well, Black Alice also, she left in Lazarus Planet. She went missing at the end of Lazarus Planet, I think. But this one looks so much like Black Alice to me. Uh, you know, I just sort of th throws me for a loop. But I'm wondering if she has a name. If anybody out there can uh, fill me out in the chat, let me know who that is. That would be kind of cool. But, I mean, I could probably cheat and read future solicitations. But I'm, she looks like a cool character, all dressed in black, looking gothic and everything. But she's the leader of the Blue Earth uh, of the Blue Earth Movement, which is against the met, which is against the Kryptonization of Metropolis, because they oppose steelworks, they oppose Kryptonians living in Metropolis, they oppose the immigrants, the Phaeolosian immigrants that came to Earth from War World, and she's the leader of the Blue Earth Movement. So that's that's another that's a that's an interesting development that I I want to give props to PKJ for because I'm I'm curious to see where that is leaving moving forward. I think it's a new character. Number one, number two, man, please come, come to my city, come to Phoenix, 
Kryptonians and and convert us with Kryptonian technology. Like, <laughs> I, I'm all for technology and advancement and whatever. I don't understand this backwards thinking of people. Um, I didn't I didn't touch on on that in my review um, because honestly, when I read that. Uh, it it was a little depressing for me. Like I I'm so t- and I get it right. Like comics and fiction in general is a reflection of the society that creates that fiction. And right now, fascism and nationalism are certainly on the rise in this country, and I think so- somewhat you could say around the world. Um, and it's so disheartening. It's so disheartening that people are so intolerant. Uh, and I'm kind of over it. <laughs> I read comics to escape from all that. Um, but I get it. I mean, this is not bad storytelling from PKJ by any means. And it's sort of a realistic uh, response that some people would want these Kryptonians and theologians gone. Um, but again, that's, that's so it's realistic <laughs> and that's what makes it depressing. So yeah. speaking of depressing, <laughs> the Riddler Year One, issue number five, written by Paul Dano. That's the actor that played the Riddler in the movie. Art is by Stefan uh, Subic. Uh, letters by Subic and Clayton Cowles. This thing is like 32, 34 pages, something like that. Yeah. And it just goes on and on and on <laughs> and on and on. And, and what? On and on and on. With the rantings of this Riddler character that I couldn't give two shits about. Um, <laughs> I didn't see the Batman movie because I knew I wouldn't like it. I was told by people that then went and saw it that I wouldn't like it, and I still haven't seen it. Uh, all credit to Paul Dano for being so invested in the character and having the passion to this. I know people who've read this that just rave about it. Um, this is not for me. Uh, and even if it was for me, it, it doesn't need to go on for 20 pages with the ramblings of a madman. Y- you can establish that in two pages. Hey, I'm, for lack of a better term, batshit crazy. I'm going to dress <laughs> up and try to drown the rats of Gotham. One page. One page of that's enough. Instead, it just goes on and on and on and on. And I don't know what the point of it is other than just to be boring. Honestly, there's only like maybe two or three pages at the end of actual sequential comics. Otherwise it's this ledger with the ramblings of the Riddler, this horrible version of the Riddler that is, that holds no interest for me. So I know I've been so negative on these DC spotlights lately. (laughs) I, I can feel it. I don't know. It just, man, I'm not enjoying these, these books right now. I'm just not, I'm sorry. I try to stay positive, but man, this, well, was, I, tough. I, this, was, this was tough to get through. <laughs> well, it, it's funny because I've been uh, slowly easing my way more and more off of social media. Like I'm taking more, longer breaks from them. Uh, in fact, that's why sometimes I don't com- immediately communicate back with you sometimes when you and I texting back and forth. So, uh, uh, in any way, in any event, uh, Look, don't be so hard on yourself. I mean, uh, comic books are cyclical and we're going to like what we like and we're not going to like what we're not going to like. It's just the way it is. But uh, I got to share your sentiment here. I mean, sometimes this stuff is just good Lord. This doesn't this is this is decidedly not a comic. This isn't this isn't really a comic. This is really this is if uh, let's give I will give some props to Paul Dano in that. 
I think he absolutely did channel his inner psychopath writing each one of these pages. I'm wondering if that's even his own writing. Maybe that's his own pencils for all I know. Is that an actual yeah. letter or is that like, like is Paul Dano okay? Anybody yeah. who knows Paul, can you go and check on him and make sure yeah. he's not like actually becoming a serial yeah. killer? But I mean, he, he literally, it looks like somebody took a, an accounting ledger and a pencil, wrote a bunch of nonsense on the page and then, you know, pasted pictures of Robert Patterson's Batman in various poses and other things. And like, I, I'm like, it's, it's, I'm sure it's very creative. And maybe if you, you know, if you're, if you absolutely, I will say this, if, if you know somebody that absolutely loves Robert Pattinson and is, and is in love with the Batman movie, this waiting for this to come out in hardcover and giving this as a gift to them would be a gift they would love. I'm sure. Cause this, I am sure gives all kinds of background and Easter eggs for the Riddler, Paul Dano's Riddler in the movie. I'm sure it does. It has to, I'm not going to read it. There's no way I'm going to read this issue in particular. It would drive me insane. It would drive me absolutely but bonkers trying to make sense of each one of these pages because I don't know what scares me more the fact that it might actually make sense or the fact that I would understand it I it just it's <laughs> I read every word every scribble you did uh, yeah I did how long did it take you to do that how long did it take you to read that I read, it over, I read it I read it while I was eating lunch one day <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God. Holy. It was, it was, I'll say this. Like I started reading it right when my food arrived. I was done eating before I finished reading the comic. <laughs> wow. What well, does it provide any insights to the character in the movie or anything like that? Or I mean, I haven't seen the movie, so oh, yeah. I can't really I can't speak to that. But what I, what I is, yeah, it did give me a sense that this guy is crazy this guy uh, and, and the sense that I got again, maybe maybe it's great that I haven't seen the movie, right? Because the the ramblings of Paul Dano was like he sees himself as this like crusader and this force for justice, and he's actually going to team up with Batman and they're going to clean up the city and they're going to make Gotham City a better place. So I don't know if that's his mission in the movie or not, um, but I do know at you know at the end well, of the movie he blows something up or like a bunch of the city is flooded, right? Yeah, and there is a reference here. At, at, at one point in the ledger, he, he write he what writes, you know, I'm going to drown all the rats in Gotham City and clean the place up. Yeah. So I'm assuming that's you know a, a an Easter egg or a, a reference adds context to the plan. Uh, yeah, the executing the movie, what that have you. So that. yeah, I mean, right. If somebody's a big fan of that movie, this is going to add context to it. But at the same time, the thing that I'm left feeling, as passionate as Paul Dano is about this, and I was at one point going, man. Paul Dan, I could, you know, because I heard some stuff or read some article or heard people talking about the fact that he he got so invested in the role that he was like going to a dark place. Uh, I could see, I was like, seriously, can somebody check on this guy and make sure he's okay? Because he clearly <laughs> was channeling serial killer. You know, he's doing a job of, you know, capturing the disturbed mind of this guy. But again, the, the overall feeling that I got from it was like, it's just not necessary. And, and even if you think it is necessary to, Give us this glimpse into this demented character. You do, a glimpse. Give us a glimpse. Give us two or three pages. That's enough. Don't go on for literally like eighteen pages of this ramp. Uh, it just didn't feel necessary. And like you said, it's not a comic. It's, and that's part of why it took me so long to read, because it's like it's like reading a book. You know, like reading uh, prose. Uh, so 
anyway, uh, credit to the, the creators for pouring their hearts and souls into this. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'll be glad when it's over, <laughs> to be honest. Um, <laughs> and, you know, if this gets people to watch the movie, I, after reading this series, it does make me a little more interested in seeing the movie than I would have been had this series well, not existed. Say that. Uh, so honestly, you, you should watch the movie now because it, it will be more entertaining than than the comic was. I'm sure. It, the irony is, is that I saw the movie, and while I, while I, it wasn't my. I'm not a fan of that iteration of Batman. It was, it was entertaining enough, and but I had no inclination. I mean, I thought one of the weakest points of the movie was Paul Bananas, the Riddler. So that's why I never read the comic. I, I, I don't. I did not like him as a villain. I thought it was, I thought it was very derivative and predictable, and it was just frankly boring but you know and too long but i never like when i saw what he looked like and you know there's this whole mystery of him creating a website and whatever just that's not the riddler to me yeah better in mind i think that colin farrell looked great as the penguin from what i saw focused focused on but but i you know i was never inclined to see it with pattison as batman because everything i saw from him just didn't look good but i will say this so this will this will please a lot of people that probably that listen to this show because a lot of people of my generation, Michael Keaton is their Batman, right? Like Michael Keaton was never my Batman. Michael Keaton was Mr. Mom. Michael, Michael Keaton was, Oh, they're bad. Oh yeah. 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 Right. Michael Keaton was Mr. Mob to me from that. That's who he was. And I wasn't a fan when they picked him to be Batman and I, I'm not a Tim Burton guy. So even though it was cool to I, when I went and saw the Batman 89 movie multiple times because it was, you know, comic books on, on the big screen. I was never a huge fan of that movie. And I never did see Batman returns in the theater. I didn't, didn't see that till years later. Um, so Christian Bale, I thought did a fantastic job. And then I, I'm actually a big fan of Batflick. I think Ben Affleck is an incredible older Batman. Oh, for sure. And he's, he's the one thing I like about the Snyderverse. So I'm, it, for me, it always went Ben Affleck, Christian Bale, uh, then Michael Keaton, then Val Kilmer, and then George Clooney for the movie Batman. After seeing The Flash, I'm on the Keaton. I'm on the Keaton train. Yeah, Michael <laughs> Keaton, the number one for me. Yeah. Uh, everybody else, you know, uh, I guess everybody else, but yeah, yeah, that was a good he, movie. Yeah. Yeah, he, takes, he takes the top spot for me, and then Ben Affleck slides down one, and Christian Bale slides down one. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that'll. I, I, Talk to a few friends that are huge Keaton Batman fans. They're like, finally, finally, you get it. He he did a fantastic job. Now, don't get me wrong. I rather would have had Thomas Wayne um, than Bruce Wayne because you know it's uh, it's Flashpoint basically. But that's a that's a discussion for another day. And the movie's not without its problems. But I did I did enjoy it. So yeah. Uh, let's move on. City Boy number two is up next, written by Greg Pak. Minku Zhang is the artist. Sunny Go on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Uh, I'll let you fire away on this one first, Rocky. What'd you think? Uh, I, I like this. It was, it, it didn't, um, I want to say it was, it went in the direction, it went in the direction where I thought it was going to go. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because I wanted to, I wanted more dark side because the last issue ended teasing that, uh, the city boy, this, this Cameron Kim is his real name. He was experimented on. Uh, uh, 
ultimately he stumbled upon an experiment uh, by this uh, by this doctor who is working for Intergang, who is affiliated with who is controlled by Darkseid, and he ends up uh, obtaining obtaining the ability to essentially take over uh, of being able to read the memory of a city to or to uh, see through see through the eyes of the city itself. If you think of a, a, any city as having sentience, of having a life of its own, he can become one with the city and locate anything. And, and young Cameron, of, of, of course, who we call City Boy, he, he, uses, he uses his powers just to find little trinkets and find things just to, just to stay alive and just to make a living and just to befriend the, the people who, who live in the city. And he doesn't abuse his powers and he certainly never used them to their full capacity. Well, at the end of last issue, he, you know, he befriended a young, a young uh, street person by the name of Fujimoto and both Fujimoto and himself get, get captured by this uh, boss Chung and and this boss Chung ties him up and you know just and you know sort of tortures Fujimoto and wants wants to use City Boy's powers to to you know make money because he can locate anything and this issue uh, just this issue has City Boy just sort of exploding his powers out and doing a great deal of damage and boss Chung gets, gets injured and city boy is, is willing to do whatever it takes to, to save his friend Fujimoto. And he does. And we, we learn more about, about city boy's powers because he merely touches the knife, uh, a jackknife that boss Chung has. And he could literally see all of boss Chung's secrets. He could see, cause it's almost like the city could, could speak to him and anything that becomes part of the city has its own kind of, odd sort of cemented sentient memory and he he can pick up on that and apparently this is ability an ability that dark side himself was trying to harness and de to develop through this dr makarason makarason this dr makarason because uh once once city boy manages to defeat boss chung he is shot at and incapacitated by uh, by uh bruno manheim bruno manheim who is the leader of intergang who right away once he incapacitates uh, cameron takes him essentially to dr uh dr mccarson who shows him images of dark side and it's hinted that really you know Young Cameron was part is sort of the embodiment of experiments that were done uh, due to the machinations of Darkseid, and uh, this Doctor Macarson is just he's uh, he's blown away and he, he's almost obsessed. He's so obsessed with City Boy's powers, he's just blown away by how powerful City Boy becomes because City Boy literally transforms an area of Metropolis into almost like this flying dragon it's kind of cool it's sort of like I, I it's almost like writer greg pack was channeling his own inner game of thrones it's like he just finished watching uh you know all the dragons on game of thrones and he wanted to create a metropolis dragon of his own and you know in this in this issue it's established that at one point you know Metropolis has an excess of 14 million people. And so when you think of the sentience that the city of Metropolis would have, embody that in a monster like a dragon. And this dragon is what City Boy sort of manifests from the city. And he uses this to protect himself. And But he goes, he, he's losing control. And it wasn't until the timely intervention of Superman at the end who actually ends up destroys the dragon uh, because city boy exclaims this is my city now because he's he's just kind of freaking out and superman says 
to him, well, I think this is, I, I, I like to think it's our city. So Superman is going to be there undoubtedly as a positive influence. That'll We, we will get that next issue. But I, I really like what Greg Pak has done in two short issues. He's established an origin. He's made a sympathetic character with City Boy. We know that City Boy, his mother ran away from him when he was young. We know that he ultimately stumbled upon experiments that which led to the, his uh, gaining these powers that he doesn't understand. He uses these powers to help people. To, to He doesn't abuse the powers just enough to get by in, in whatever city he's in. And he's a likable character, this Cameron Kim. And I... And, by the end of the second issue, already, man, we've got machinations of Darkseid, Dr. McCarrison. We got this uh, intergang, and we got Superman showing up. So, you know, I'm happy with this, and I want to give uh, Greg Pak a pat on the back. And kudos to artist uh, Minkyu Jung. Does a really good job here of channeling his, his inner Game of Thrones. And uh, um, also, uh, Sunny, I don't know, is it Sunny Go? You see, also the artist as well. But anyways, I, I, I was impressed. What do you think? Yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, really fast paced. Um, yeah, we saw dark side show up last time. I mentioned how interesting that was. We both did. Uh, Cause it really pulls city boy into the greater DC superhero universe. So seeing him show up, having inner gang show up. I mean, these are classic metropolis uh, characters and organizations. So that's really great. Um, what's, Interesting too is, you know, like you said, City Boy kind of once food's injured, he sort of cuts loose, right? But he seems to be playing right into the hands of Darkseid and the machinations of Mannheim and Inner Gang. And uh, how does how is that all gonna play out, right? Like City Boy is powerful and he's lashing out and he's finally embracing his powers and unleashing them to do more than just find trinkets, like you were mentioning, trinkets that he could pawn off to to basically feed himself since he's on his own and has been on his own for a really long time. Um, so how is him embracing his powers and cutting loose? How does that play into Darkseid's plans or Mannheim's plans or Inner King's plans? That's going to be the inter- That's the hook. That's the, the thing that's going to have me coming back. Cause I don't, I don't know. It's not obvious how him becoming more powerful is going to lead to um, basically terraforming Metropolis to turn it into a place for dark side, right? Because that's ultimately what inner gang wants to do and what dark side is uh, asking for. So um, I don't know that I would say I'd look forward to a, a Superman city boy team up like, okay, last issue or next to last issue, it's city boy, Superman fighting side by side against dark side. That could be a little problematic. I mean, is city boy powerful. He's yeah, in a way, but you, I don't think you could put him on on Apocalypse and have him be powerful, right? He, they're not really a city to talk to. Or could he talk to Apocalypse? I mean, is the whole planet a city? Like, you know, there's a lot a lot we don't know. Um, but it seems like a team up in a way. But City Boy is in Metropolis. So, yeah, Superman's going to show up if there's something going on in the city. So I appreciated that as well. Uh, okay, up next, I don't read this, but uh, it's the continuation of Fables. We're up to issue 159 from writer-creator Bill Willingham. Mark Buckingham handles the pencils. Steve Leia Aloha on inks. Lee Luffridge on colors. Todd Klein on letters. Uh, take it away, Rocky. Uh, yeah. Well, this is uh, part uh, 9 of 12 of The Black Force, which is a uh, essentially uh, essentially dealing with uh, – the, it's the at the end of the main Fables run, the Fables – 
the existence of the fables, these magical creatures the, of our fairy tales became known to the main, main world uh, and were, were known as Mondays. And we became, we became aware that the Big Bad Wolf, Snow White, and all these fairy tale creatures actually exist. Well, uh, in this particular storyline, we're, we're now the, the, the children of the Big Bad Wolf and Snow White – uh, which uh, consists of a very a series of, of smaller wolves, Blossom Wolf, Connor Wolf, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're off exploring. Meanwhile, Peter Pan has come along, and Peter Pan and and his and Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell is very powerful, and Peter Pan is is a real bad guy. He's a real jerk. He's an a hole, and he. He ends up getting badly beaten last issue by uh, because he's such an asshole. He gets end up beaten by Connor Wolf or one of the wolves, and he tells Tinkerbell to go. I want you to wipe out all the wolves. Now, meanwhile, uh, Big B Wolf, the uh, the keeper of the green, and the forest god are fighting over control of the black forest, and and. What what they what they stumble upon they stumble upon a crime scene because a bunch of animals have been killed by Peter Pan. Now they don't know who Peter Pan is and they don't even know that Peter Pan killed all these animals. So they come up with a deal saying, okay, look, rather than all of us fight because they're all personally embarrassed because they all consider themselves to be the masters of the Black Forest and because all of them fail to stop this this crime from happening, they make, they come to an agreement. They say, look, all right, between Big B Wolf, the, the keeper of the of the green and the forest god, whichever one of us happens, whichever one of us happens to find the uh, find who did this, uh, will become the king of the of, king of the forest, so to speak. And uh, in any event, uh, what ends up happening is that one of the one of the boyfriends of the of Blossom Wolf ends up getting killed and that boyfriend happens to be the son of the forest god and he actually freaks out at the end and Tinkerbell meanwhile uh, doesn't like to be captive she's forced to do the bidding of Peter Pan because uh, Tinkerbell has to listen to what Peter Pan says and Tinkerbell goes to Cinderella who works for the US government she's uh, she's the one that helps the US government deal with magical problems of which is which is clearly happening in this comic and so Tinkerbell is indirectly asking for help from Cinderella to help rid herself of Peter Pan who's causing all this chaos in these nine issues so far this is a lot of fun if uh, Bill Willingham is doing he, he, Bill Willingham is doing what he does best Right, fables and Mark Buckingham's art is fantastic. It's uh, readers of fables will love it. And if you're with us, it's this is this is I hate to say this, but it is an inaccessible. Uh, you'll want to read this from the beginning, and probably if you haven't are already reading fables, you should read any fables trade paperback because it's it, they're all good. So uh, you know I. I, I quite enjoyed this issue. I incidentally, because I am a Fables fan, I read this issue first this week when I saw it because I'm really curious to know what's going to happen to Peter Pan and Tinkerbell and Cinderella and Big and Big B Wolf and the and, and the Wolf Children. So it's kind of a big deal to me. But <laughs> but yeah, that's why I, I love it. It's really it's an enjoyable series. Uh, all right, moving on to Harley Quinn number thirty one, and for whatever reason. We don't have uh, a credits page, uh, so it's written by Tinny Howard, but she has a, a writing partner this time. Um, Campbell is the last name. Sweeney Boo still on art. Um, Bratukin does colors, I think, or maybe it's inks. Lee Luffridge on colors typically. So apologies. You know, it's really it's super it super frustrates me when we get the press uh, copies. We don't have the all the 
uh, craters in there to, to give them credit. So uh, Heather Campbell is the, the writer. Um, and Philia Bratukin, yeah, I don't, it's just credited as artist. Steve Wands handles the letters, so um, apologies for not crediting him um, like we like to do. Uh, as far as the story, man, it's Zany Harley. It's Harley and Poison Ivy. Um, and it's it, what is interesting about it and talking about Harley traveling around the multiverse and being able to pull, you know, reach in the multiverse and pull weapons and whatever. And Lady Quark being upset about that and, and you know, threatening to erase her from existence. It's such a weird juxtaposition, right? With this zany Harley, with the real animated cartoony style of Sweeney Boo. Um, and then you're, when you're talking about big events like crises and, you know, destroying multiverses and, and that sort of thing. So it, it, it's, I like that there's stakes and I like that there's big things happening with Harley Quinn, even if it doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, and Tinny Howard leans into that, right? She's Harley Quinn herself is trying to understand how she has these powers and abilities to reach in the multiverse. How did she go and grab that Vorpal sword, pull fish rather, um, that then, you know, prevented Captain Carrot from saving the zoo crew. Like this, this is a, in a way, a more powerful and a more impactful Harley in terms of how she can affect the overall DC universe. Um, but it is still zany Harley, which I'm not the biggest fan of. Um, but between the Sweeney Boo art and the, the little jokes here and there um, that we get from Howard, it's it's actually pretty fun. Um, so even though I'm not the biggest Harley fan, this was an enjoyable issue. Um, so... What, what do you have to say about it, Rocky? Not much, to be honest with you. I, I actually like seeing, uh, I, I like, uh, if I wasn't so tired of multiversal stories, you know, I'd probably give this more uh, more of a serious read. But it, it's hard because it's, it's just, I, I just can't, I, um, I have a hard time, I have just have a hard time accepting this kind of, this form of Harley where just, Everything is kind of a joke, and yet we're supposed to take it serious. Yet we're not supposed to take it serious. It is Harley. Yet I, I like there. There, the biggest thing with Harley, what I, what I, the way I put it is, there's there's no illusion of reality. There, there's no there's no suspension. <laughs> like there's just I can't even pretend that is it is real because it's even within the DC universe, it's not actually real. It's not actually part of continuity because it can't be, even though they say it is. It really isn't because it can't be. It doesn't fit, and so it just rather than argue with it, we're supposed to just go with it and then accept it. But if you accept it in the continuity, it screws everything up because it really doesn't make any sense. Uh, and while I acknowledge that many of the writers and editors don't have, don't care about continuity anyway, despite giving lip service to it, the fact is, is that it doesn't have the illusion of, of verisimilitude, even within the nonsense of a Harley Quinn story. So with all due respect to Teeny Howard, I, it's an oak, I guess it is what it is, but frankly, what what I would prefer this Harley Quinn comic be is what the backup is, a series of just have a bunch of Harley Quinn one-offs, have this be an anthology of crazy zany Harley Quinn stories that that with just very different artists, different eclectic styles. You know, uh, the story by uh, Heather Ann Campbell, Harley Genesis. That was the art's fantastic. I mean, the art by uh, 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 Philia Bratukin. 
is amazing. And the color by Lee Lowridge on the covers, that's that's gorgeous. That was just a that was a visual feast just to watch. And that's what I like to see Harley Quinn. Like if you're gonna go out there, go out there and go really, really zany. That's what I like, that that story. And it has something to say as opposed to a drawn out multiversal story that we've seen before. So what do you think of the backup? Yeah, not much. I mean, like you said, th- these backups, they frame them as, hey, these are dreams Harley Quinn is having. Why? Why why, why, are you, why do you bother to do that? Because like you said, the first story doesn't really fit in the continuity either. This one doesn't, but oh, then it's framed as a dream. Well, why? Why? what does it matter? The first one doesn't fit in continuity, neither does this one. You're not saying the first one is a dream. So like you said, why, why just have it be whatever it is? Um, it's hard to overstate how amazing the art is. I mean, so much detail. Um, so yeah, again, it's, it's Harley, it's zany. Uh, the Joker gets killed. I appreciated that. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a Harley story. We all, we all know I'm, I'm hardly out at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe that's ultimately why, why I'm, I'm just not excited as excited about DC comics these days. Cause it's just, you know, it's getting to be so repetitive we get tons of Batman. We get tons of Harley. We get tons of Amanda Waller. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I'm just, I'm kind of over it. Uh, well, moving on to the last book, Tim, uh, last book we're going to talk about in detail anyway, Tim Drake Robin, number 10, final issue of the series written by Megan Fitzmartin, uh, Nicholas Simeggia on art, Lee Lufford on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Um, it's a satisfying conclusion. Uh, I don't think it lands with the emotional impact that, that it might have. Um, and unfortunately I think Fitzmartin's runs out of room a little bit. I talked a lot about having her on. We never could make our, um, our schedule sync up. Um, and it's unfortunate because I, I think she, she would have provided some context to the series and it's sort of hinted at here where Tim's talking about finding himself and, and looking for his identity and he's been searching all along and, it, and come, come to find out it all comes full circle when he's trapped by the chaos monsters and who comes to the rescue but the other members of the Bat family? And that's when, uh, for lack of a better term, light dawns on Marble Head. And Tim realizes, oh, I, I did sort of have an identity. I did know who I was, uh, even if I struggled at times. Uh, I'm, I do have a family. And, and I think that's why – that's sort of the disconnect that a lot of people have with the series is they're like, well, Tim is supposed to be a smart guy. How could he have ever forgotten this stuff? Um, but I still think there's a part of Tim that is so, he's sort of like as a character, a people pleaser, right? So he bases his decisions on how he thinks other people, what other people think he should choose or how other people see him. And he's more worried about it than stopping to think what he actually wants. So I think there's still something to be explored there. Um, and so th- this was ultimately an okay series, but I don't think it, really did everything that it needed to do. And, and I think like pacing wise, it just, it didn't, it didn't get to this sort of stuff. Like finally we're 10 issues in final issue and we're finally getting Tim like giving voice to the reader and making it a little more clear to the reader of what the struggle, like why he was having this struggle. Cause I think, again, that's where a lot of people fell down. They're like, Tim Drake has been around forever. He should know who he is. Um, and that speaks to sort of the um, the stagnant nature of comics in terms of you got to keep the characters recognizable and the same. But then if you have longtime readers, like then you're just reading the same story over and over and over. 
So how do you evolve the characters and still keep them recognizable as who they are, but then keep it fresh? Like that's a, that's a constant battle. Um, Jerry Conway and I have talked about that a lot when he's been on the show. Um, you have to give the illusion of change when the core of the character remains the same. Um, and I think a lot of people just feel like DC has been messing with the core of who Tim Drake is. Um, but if you go back and read some of those stories, it might not have been the intention at the time, but you can read into them that the decisions Tim Drake was making at the time were not necessarily decisions he wanted to make, but decisions he expected others, you know, decisions based on the expectations of parents or the expectations of his peers or the expectations of Bruce. Um, so again, I, like, I don't think the series was successful from a fan perspective. Um, it's, it's a little disappointing because there was a lot of potential here. Um, the other thing is they never had a good artist on the series. I'm sorry. No offense to Rosmo or uh, Nicholas Semeggia here, <clears throat> but it's just, it's not a style that people who are fans of Tim Drake are going to embrace, right? Especially when you go back and you look at that traditional comic book art style that was always on the Robin uh, series in the past, you know, with guys like um, Tom Lyle and uh, I think uh, Chuck McDaniel, or uh, uh, what's his first name? McDaniel. Uh, I can't remember his first name. But anyway, uh, Scott McDaniel. Um, yeah, I just sometimes I don't understand why DC makes the decisions they make. Like you, you already know that there's some pushback on having Tim Drake in a same sex relationship. That's enough. That's, that's already strike one. So give the series every other chance to succeed. Put a artist on there that has an art style that's closer to DC house style and, and really try to get people to jump on from that perspective. But instead you, you give immediately give strike two by putting an, you know, an artist on there who's, that's not his style. You know, he's got a controversial style. Some people love it. Some people hate it. There's not really anybody in the middle. Um, I just, I don't understand decisions like that. I just don't. You, it, It's like the same thing as Batgirls. Like, I feel like Batgirls was set up for failure from the beginning with the art choice they made. And the same thing here with Tim Drake. Like, I, I don't, I don't understand. I just don't. So anyway. Uh, I know you're never a big fan of this series, so I don't know if you have anything to add. Well, you know, it's funny. I'm just uh, – I just skim-read it, and I skim-read it as you were talking. Uh, and it's uh, it, it's occurred to me that, uh, yeah, you're right. Fitzmartin does have something to say here, and it, she may have been able to contribute something worthwhile to Tim Drake's uh, mythology. I just uh, – I think it's fair to say that given the fan reaction to it overall – and I admit I'm one of those fans that wasn't a big – big fan of it uh, it's i think it's it's unfortunate it's it, a lot of what she's trying to say might be lost uh on on future writers quite frankly but i do find it interesting in this issue tim drake comes to the conclusion that all he ever wanted to be in life he never wanted to be robin he never wanted to be batman all he wanted to all he wanted to be in life was my was his dad that's interesting uh, that that's news to me. I know that Tim Drake lost his dad. His dad was killed during Identity Crisis, which that that epic run. Uh, that that's an interesting angle. He always wanted to be his dad. You juxtapose Tim Drake's relationship with his dad, which I would have liked to have seen more explored in this series. That would have been interesting. We we learned more about, I guess, Bernard's relationship with his parents. We never really talked much about Tim Drake's relationship with his 
biological parents. Uh, and that would have been more interesting. I would have liked to have seen more of that. Less of the chaos monsters in the Moriarty, which I think sort of really took me out of the story. And I, I really didn't understand. I didn't really understand any of the plot threads pretty much in this entire series. I had a hard time with it. But when Miss Fitzmartin has something to say about maybe Tim Drake, um, that was got lost in the translation for me as well. And I'm clearly not the only one. And uh, I will give you props for, uh, I, I think you you and I, I, probably one of our more heated debates, we, we, we've, you know, I think we did our job in terms of talking, you know, giving both sides of the story in terms of defending this series and also maybe being constructively critical of it. And uh, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see where Tim Drake is moving forward. It's an open question now, given the fate of this series, how soon will it be do we see Tim Drake Robin get his own series again? Yeah, and I think a lot of my perspective came from the conversation I had last year at San Diego Comic-Con with Megan, and it's part of the reason I wanted to have her on the show at some point. You know, she didn't get spoilery um, with what was going on, but, you know, she talked a lot, and her passion for Tim Drake was, was you know, very self-evident. But she talked a lot about, you know, why he, she was having him explore the things he was having, and a lot of the things she was saying, and I was a huge Tim Drake Tim Drake is my Robin. He's my favorite Robin. Um, and, you know, I've read that series, uh, collected it up through over issue 100. I think it went to 139. I don't I don't think I, I think I fell off a little after. But anyway, for over 100 issues, I was in, you know, um, and I liked a lot of what she had to say. And that was why I was championing the series, because I thought it was going to get to this point a lot sooner. And I think it just, again, poor poor choice of artists. And it, it just, it took a little too long to get to where it needed to get to. So, uh, anyway, like I said, that's the last issue we're going to cover in detail. For other single issues, we have the DC Ruby series up to issue five this week. Batman The Adventures Continue Season 3 has issue six drop. And I think that's it. I think we talked about everything else. Um, so as far as collections go, there's a lot of them this week. Nightwing Volume 3, Battle for Bloodhaven, Battle for Bloodhaven's Heart, hardcover, which collects Nightwing's, uh, Nightwing 92 through 96. Excuse me. Uh, one of our favorite eras of Flash ever from writer Jeremy Adams has <laughs> a volume come out this week as well. Volume 18, which collects Flash number 780 through 789 and the 2022 annual uh, Detective Comics Volume 2 Fear State trade paperback. This is uh, the second part of the Mariko Tamaki um, Arkham Tower story. Uh, collects Detective Comics 1040 through 1046 and Batman Secret Files Huntress, number one. Or Huntress, who we haven't seen in a long time. Uh, she has those powers. She's able to sense when certain um, violent acts are, are going on. Uh, Dark Crisis, World Without a Justice League hard, hardcover is also out this week. This collects all the World Without a Justice League one-shots from the Dark Crisis series. Um, honestly, I... I I can't suggest anybody go out and spend twenty four ninety nine for that because um, those stories were were not the best. Uh, but if you're so inclined, uh, Absolute Batman: The Joker's hardcover. This one I have mixed feelings about. It collects Batman Three Jokers one through three, which uh, won a Comic Source Award for me, uh, but not one you want to win. Biggest disappointment for uh, the year that it came out. Um, this is the oversized Absolute Edition hardcover, a hundred dollars. It is the best way to see Jason Fabok's art. I will say that. Unfortunately, the story is a bit nonsensical. We're still trying to make sense out of it, honestly, um, with what's going on with 
Matthew Rosenberg Joker series and the Joker appearing other places. So take that for what you will. Um, also, there is a Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths hardcover, which collects the Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths um, series. So again, we weren't big fans of that series, but it does have a, a hardcover. And then to complete the trilogy, along with Worlds Without a Justice League and the, the Dark Crisis hardcover itself, there's also Tales from Dark Crisis hardcover, which collects Justice League Road to Dark Crisis number one, Dark Crisis the Deadly Green number one, Dark Crisis the Dark Army number one, Dark Crisis Warzone number one, and Dark Crisis Big Bang number one. A lot of those are anthologies. Again, take them for what you will. Dark Crisis wasn't the best event. But if you're so inclined to get the entire Dark Crisis story, you can basically buy, buy those three hardcovers and get the whole thing. Um, the last uh, collection is one from the Bronze Age. So all those fantastic Justice League, Justice Society crossovers from the Bronze Age are collected here. Crisis on Multiple Earths, book number three, Countdown to Crisis, collects Justice League of America, 171, 172, 183 and 185, 195 through 197, 207 to 209, 219 to 220, 231, 232, All-Star Squadron, 14 and 15, and DC Comics Presents Annual 10. And if you notice, those Justice League of America issues are about 10 issues apart, because that was a crossover used to happen once a year, right? Where the Justice Society, old classic Golden Age DC heroes would team up with the Justice League, new at the time, a new version of uh, of DC's premier super team, if you will. Yeah, it would happen about once a year. So uh, just a, a, an absolute legendary um, roster of writers. When you talk about people that wrote that, we're talking Roy Thomas, we're talking Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, uh for artists, we have George Perez, Dick Dillon, Keith Pollard, Don Heck, Jerry Ordway. Um, I mean, uh, just fantastic, fantastic uh, creators on that. So uh, so that does it for collections. Uh, Book of the Week, Rocky, anything stand out for you? Uh, you know, I was just as, as you were talking there, I was sort of reflecting on what I was going to pick. And boy, I, I got to say, it's a real tough one, but I – damn, I – I have to give it, I'm going to have to give it to, uh, no, not Detective Comics. I have to give it, I'm trying to find it here. There it is, Brave and the Bold, because the, I laughed out loud at the jokes. The Joker's jokes made me laugh, okay? And it, I was entertained. And and Ed Brizen, I got to, Ed Brizen is why I chose uh, the Brave and the Bold. Ed Brizen's uh, Stormwatch story. I absolutely loved it. Per Pedro, the, the ship captain Pedro, what happened to him? And director Bones and uh, uh, just all, all those characters from Peace, Peace, Peacekeeper 1 to uh, a Shadow to uh, Flint and to uh, uh, Phantom Phantom One uh, and with Ravager. I mean, everything just really clicked in that story. And I'm really, I'm looking forward to future issues. And it's, I'm, I'm seriously thinking about, God damn, if I got to pick up an issue, I said I wouldn't pick up. But uh, yeah, I got to give it to, to Brave and the Bold. What about you? I thought you were going to choose Fables, to be honest. Um, uh, well, that's yeah. a close second, I got to tell you. But, you know, yeah. I got to go with what entertained me the most, so. All right. Well, it was an easy pick for me this week. Um, again, nothing blew me away, but I, I think my the book I was most entertained by, from story to art to you know moments and what have you, was Green Arrow. Green Arrow number number three. Um, just it, it was fantastic. It was so fun. The the competition between Peacemaker and uh, 
and Roy Harper and, you know, having a, some of the mystery solved of what's going on and not dragging it out too, too far. Uh, Sean's Isaac's art, like I mentioned, just fantastic. So uh, yeah, green arrow for me uh, right for the week. So that's going to do it, everybody. We appreciate you joining us as always. Don't forget to head over to YouTube and subscribe to Rocky's channel. If you're a longtime listener of the Comic Source, uh, we really appreciate the support over there. Just go to YouTube, search for Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. Check out uh, previous videos. Ring the notification bell uh, so you know when new content comes out. Make sure you subscribe. Leave some comments. Let us know what your favorite DC book of the week was. Uh, if you stumble across us on YouTube or you're a subscriber to Rocky's channel and you want to check out the other audio-only content from the Comic Source, just go to wherever you get your podcasts, do a search for the Comic Source, and subscribe. So that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. We appreciate you joining us as always, and we will talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.